the Tor.com podcast. My name is Justin Landon, and I am your host. Back after something of a holiday hiatus, I saw Star Wars. I bought my children a lot of Star Wars toys. I played golf. I helped plan a convention. And now I'm back and hopefully unburdened with all kinds of things that were weighing me down in the month of December. So uh, I am here tonight with a returning Rocket Talk guest. And we're here to talk about her new short fiction magazine, uh, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. But my guest tonight is Mer Lafferty. She's published five novels, including The Shambling Guide to New York City and The Ghost Train to New Orleans. She's the host of the Parsec Award-winning podcast, I Should Be Writing, and the former host of Pseudopod and Escape Pod. Her newest novel, Six Wakes, is out this October. She also participates in the Book Burners Season 1 uh, through Serial Box. And she won the 2013 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Welcome, Mer. You know what I'm not doing right now? And, and instead, I'm talking to you. You know what I'm not doing? Edits. No, no. Well, that, yeah, sure. But what I'm not doing is putting together my uh, Poe Dameron X-Wing Lego set. Oh, it, it, I saw you tweet about that. Is it awesome? It's amazing. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. It's on my dining room table, and I'm giving time to you instead of it. And I want you to feel incredibly special, Justin. Did it only come with a Poe minifig, or did you get other minifigs with it? Uh, you get a, an alien handyman kind of guy, repair guy. Sure. And then you get uh, a generic male uh, resistance pilot, X-Wing pilot. Is there a droid? Yeah. Okay. But not BB-8. It is BB-8. Oh, it is BB-8. Yeah. He's adorable. He is. He is. I presume you've seen The Force Awakens. Twice. Twice. God, I'm so jealous. I've only seen it once, and I saw it with my very young children. So oh, there so there was distraction. Lots and, of distraction, and, yeah. Yeah. And, but uh, they, will, they will remember it and, and cherish that. They may not cherish it now, but they will later. You know they will. I, I think so. I haven't had a chance to escape yet. Because like, I need to go see it by myself, right? Like I need yes. to clear distractions and just watch it by myself. But, uh, but I very much enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And I'm really enjoying Twitter fandom. Get really obsessed with minutia of various character arcs <laughs> yes and i enjoy reading emo kylo ren and uh lonely luke skywalker oh, I haven't, new twitter i haven't seen lonely luke skywalker yeah to... it's a lot about how he's been on a, on a planet for 20 years staring at the water uh that's what he does he stares at the water <laughs> so he's so he's uh what is it walden Hen Hen henry walden yes yes david uh, thoreau david thoreau yeah <laughs> Thank you for that. I like it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And, and my daughter is into it and my son is obsessed. But uh, but it's a lot. Of, we have Disney Infinity. Are you familiar with Disney Infinity? I am considering getting that. I just have to convince my husband that it's not going to be another Skylanders. I don't know anything about Skylanders. Disney Infinity is a lot of fun. We have uh, we've spent way too much money on it. My kids love it. And it's like Minecraft, but with good graphics and characters you know and love. So it's like what can go wrong? Interesting. Yeah. And the missions are really fun. Like It's actually a really good Star Wars game. Yeah, I loved uh, Star Wars Lego. The, yeah, The video game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, we could probably talk about Star Wars the entire time. That would be so much fun, but yeah. I guess that's not what we're here for. That's not what we're here for. We, but we, maybe, maybe some other time. I, I probably should do a Star Wars episode. But, uh, but yeah, that's not why we're here tonight. We're here to talk about your new magazine, Mothership Zeta. Yes. You have one issue out. It came out uh, last year, and your second issue is coming out shortly at the end of the month? Yes. All right. So my first question when I heard that you all were 
uh, launching a new magazine. I thought to myself, like, boy, we've had a lot of short fiction magazines kind of launch in the last year or two years. And I thought to myself, so like another one? Uh, so I want to, I want to get a little bit from you about like why you felt like it was, you needed another short fiction magazine out there. I mean, what is Mothership Zeta doing? Uh, what need is it filling that maybe some of the others aren't? Well, Escape Artists, which runs Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Podcastle, the three uh, free podcasts, uh, is expanding. Um, we have a new pub. Well, it's not, he's not new anymore, but when our publisher took over, Alistair Stewart, he had some ideas on how to move the company forward. And one thing he wanted to do was start an e-zine that sort of tied in the elements of all three podcasts. So, um, and when he brought me on board to run it, I, I loved the concept of the, the way Escape Pod was created, which was, Steve Ely saying he wanted to bring fun science fiction to podcast. And I always worry talking about this because I worry that people are going to think that I dislike serious stuff. I mean, yes, Ken Liu can drive me to tears, but I don't always want to be driven to tears. I, you know, I like fun stuff and I don't think it gets enough um, respect, actually. So, uh, we decided to focus on fun science fiction, horror, and fantasy. And the fun thing has been, it's always a, uh, it's a subjective thing. Everyone has different ideas of fun. We have gotten, we got one story that was kind of someone's idea of fetish fun in the bedroom. And I'm like, well, that's, can be fun in some people's, I estimations, but not quite what we're looking for for this magazine. And, you know, other things might be have, have, a, have a sense of seriousness, but the concept was fun and the ending was satisfying. And so we, we go in that direction. It's not all humor. It's not all slapstick. I guess that's what we were feeling. We were looking for specifically specific fun things to science fiction, fantasy and horror. I think you kind of touched on the challenge there, which is how do you define fun? Exactly. And I think sometimes it can mean like brisk pace wise, you know, like fast moving and kind of energetic and that yes. kind of thing, or it can mean funny or it can mean you know, whimsical or, or whatever. I imagine that there's two of you acquiring, right? It's Sunil acquires Sunil Patel and then you are both acquiring stories or are you acquiring together? Uh, Sunil is my assistant editor, so he's kind of uh, wrangling the slushers and reading slush himself and passing stuff up to me. Um, we talk together about who we want to solicit. He's doing an amazing job with the fiction. It's it's kind of startling. Not that I'm startled he could do an amazing job, but startling that, am I doing enough? Because he's doing such an amazing job, I kind of just want to go, okay, Sunil, you take it. Yeah, so, so I guess like, like what I was getting at was that this notion of fun, right, is very, as you've said, subjective. And with you being the final arbiter of what's getting in the magazine, I imagine that we're going to get an idea of what you think is fun. Sort of. Um, one thing I love about working with Sunil is that we have, uh, we disagree on, I wouldn't say a lot, but we have disagreed on several things. Um he loves puns. So, you know, people can think that if you can get a pun past Sunil, it might reach me. And if Sunil puts his stamp on it, 
I'll accept that many other people love puns, and I don't always have to be 100% in love with stories if I think that they will appeal to an audience. That's one thing I really like about working with him because we disagree on some things and he shows me things that I probably would not have looked at without his approval. Um, seeing it with his opinion attached to it sort of broadens my vision. I wouldn't have said, hey, go find an assistant editor that disagrees with you, but it's working. It's working really well. So I, I would say, you know, you you might find some things that I find are fun, but, you know, I may buy things that Sunil thinks is a lot of fun and I disagree with, but I think that the audience will agree with him. Ooh, that's deep. Isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it is. Because I always, I always think that's one of the hardest challenges of being an editor is trying to identify something that both you can appreciate, uh, but, but you think will sell, right? And so, like, there are many editors out there that are very good at identifying what they like. But finding something that is going to resonate with an audience, even if it isn't exactly what you want, but you know it'll sell. I mean, that's that's what great editors are able to do, I think. And I think it's a, a much rarer skill. Oh, well, thank you. I think. So hopefully uh, hopefully that's what you're doing. I'll have to – I've read a, I read a couple of the stories in the first issue and I was pretty excited. And I have to tell you, I'm going to derail a little bit with sort of the big, sure. the big picture talk. The first issue had this – super fun uh, thing that you did where you had this story and then you had James Kelly kind of provide a workshop on that story. Isn't that awesome? It's really cool. All Jim Kelly's idea. Uh, I would love, I would love to take, I would love to take credit for it, but it's all Jim Kelly. I mean, I guess my question is, are you going to make that a regular thing? Cause I think it was really oh, yeah. cool. Okay. Oh, it's totally regular. He's, he's got, uh, I've got a really weird Ursula Vernon story for issue two that he has workshopped. Um, he said we had a meeting at Boscone around this time last year. And when I was talking to him about writing for us and he said, you know, what I've always wanted to do is if, if, if you ever have the the honor of doing a workshop with Jim Kelly, and it's possible because he does a lot of workshops. He loves workshopping. I'm sorry. I'm going to derail a little bit. A lot of writing advice says never listen to anybody in a workshop who says, this is wrong. You should do this. Unless it's James Patrick Kelly. Because he's a veteran, award winner, and he he's a story doctor. And so... Um, he calls himself the story doctor is in. That's what the column's called. And of course, he's going to give it. He's not going to rip it to shreds. That's not what the purpose is for. But he he, he is taking one epi one story in each issue and taking it apart and explaining why it works. Our first issue had a story by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam that's a rather strange story about sex. And it's, it is explicit, but it's not titillating. And <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating thing. It's not erotica, but you don't want to read it at work or with your kids reading over your shoulder, but, uh, it's honest. That's what I like about it. And then, so I sent it to Jim and Jim wrote his piece on how to, how to write sex and stories and how specifically Bonnie did a great job within the story of, of placing sex in to, fulfill the, the needs of the story. And uh, so we've got him doing that again in issue two. And yes, it's going to be a regular thing. And I'm always so excited. That's one of my favorite things after we make our, our purchase purchases for each issue is to decide which one is going to be sent to the story doctor. I love this because 
having read the the piece that he wrote, it isn't just so an aspiring writer can read that and take something away from it. But the way that he does it also provides just somebody who's a reader with some insight into sort of like why a story works uh, in a way that is interesting to the reader, even if they're not a writer. And I I think that's what makes it really fun and effective. And getting back on that fun thing, I think it makes it really fun that a reader can read the story and then immediately sort of get this conversation about the story that there really is nowhere else to get right away. It's that instant conversation that they get to have about the story they just read. Yeah, I was I was absolutely excited when Jim suggested this to me. So I'm I'm so proud to to, to feature it. Is he is it's always going to be him, or are you gonna you gonna experiment with other story doctors? I don't want you to I don't want you to tell me they're going to cheat on Jim. I just want to know. <laughs> no, it's it's always going to be him. It, it's his column. I I said I want you to write for us. I don't want to steal you away from Sheila, but uh, it, it's it's only a quarterly. So if you have the time, we'd love to have you. And he said. You know, I'd love to do this this one thing I've been thinking about. And so uh, it's always going to be him as long as he wants to do it. That's a lot of fun. So you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's everybody should know this after the brief conversation we've had, but Mothership Zeta is part of this escape pod pseudopod network of, of things that are being published. And I'm curious about you have all of this existing story infrastructure from escape pod and pseudopod. I assume some of which have seen actual print and some have not. Uh, do you anticipate taking some of that story backlog and bringing it into print in this easing? Or is this all going to be originals? We are going to be taking some of our favorite uh, stories from podcasts and putting them as reprints into the easing. Uh, not a lot to start out with, but uh, hopefully moving forward, we'll be in- offering not a whole lot, but inst- we're we're kind of strange in that we're not accepting reprints, reprint submissions, but we want to we want to pick our reprints specifically from the as you said large pool of stories within our family because there are a lot of fun stories that appear in all three podcasts, and so we're uh, eager to pull from there as well as our slush pile. Uh, one of the things I've kind of noticed, and I think there's there's some skept- I think there's a lot of skepticism out there about all of these. We've seen a lot of short fiction magazines come into the market the last couple of years, and they were just kind of like, "Wow, it's a lot of short fiction mags." And you know, is there enough of an audience for them? Is there? I don't think there's any shortage of submissions. I don't think we're we're running low on stories. But is there enough of an audience for all these magazines? But I have a theory that short fiction is making a comeback due to the whole digital sort of revolution. And you see things like Tor.com Publishing that have popped up and, um, you know, Harper Harper's doing more novellas. Uh, and I think the short story market is also, you know, popping back up because these short fiction magazines and the, the, the file that you sent me, for example, of Mothership's Ada's ebook. I mean, it's a great way to consume short fiction. I think people are going to start doing it more and more. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think this is a burgeoning market, a growing market and it's going to be even hotter in the future. It's totally growing. We have a lot of listeners for the podcast, a whole lot. And what what always surprised me was whenever we would mention this story first appeared in fantasy and science fiction or this story first appeared in Asimov's, we would almost always get someone saying, "Wow, I love science fiction, but I didn't know those magazines existed." So I'll go check them out. These are people are listening who come to us through iTunes or I don't even know where, but 
they're not coming to us from knowing about a whole bunch of the, the, the classic long-standing science fiction magazines. They're coming from elsewhere. So you've got people who are reading the magazines that have always been there and the newcomers, but there's a whole bunch of people who don't even know we exist, which is why it's great that the ebooks and uh, podcasts have started featuring started. I say started. Escape Pod's been around for 10 years. Oh, I'm old. Sorry. But um, the there's still relatively new media. And so bringing in people who didn't even know what was there before tells me that it's definitely not dying. We're putting some of the, the files up on our website, mothershipzeta.org, for free and keeping some in um, in the issue that you have to buy. And that that's always an interesting question of what to tease with and what to hold back. And uh, I'm always afraid of making the wrong decision there. But right. uh, do, you, do you give them the best story or do you give them the second best? <laughs> exactly. And I can't answer that even if I had an answer, because that would let you know what I thought of the stories that went on there. Right. But we put Bonnie's story and Jim Kelly's critique of it on the website this past time. But we probably won't next time because we want that to be something to encourage people to buy. And that was a good decision. I I I think it's 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 a good teaser, but I, I think you're right. I think that's something that people would come back for, uh, right? And want to and want to buy the issue for. See, that's the whole strategy of running a magazine. I think is really fascinating. Is these decisions that you're going to have to make? I mean, I assume I assume are you also making like layout decisions on like what the cover looks like, what goes on the cover, what? Is that all you too? Um, I'm I am hiring the cover artists, but uh, we do have a graphic designer doing most of the layout so but we we pretty much tell him you know what what's authors we want on the cover etc but he decides where everything goes right and uh that's that's matt weller who's been doing a lot of work with escape artists behind the scenes for years so he's he's been doing audio production and now he's doing our graphic our our layout Speaking of uh, fun, which we've referenced several several times during this conversation, how much fun is it with doing your cover art? Oh, it's awesome! Uh, it, it was it was a thrill to. I, I met up with Frank Wu again at Boscone. Bo- last year's Boscone was excellent for me. I recommend the convention. I'm not going to make it this year, but I do recommend the convention anyway. So Frank Wu was at the the con last year, and he said he was working on something exciting and fun, and. Uh, I wanted first rights to license it. So it was, it was a big thrill to offer an original Frank Wu. And um, then one thing that, that really, I'm not an artist and I don't think visually. And that's one of my weakest points as a writer. One of my most frequent critiques on first drafts is why are these people in a white room? I just want to describe the action and the dialogue and what what things look like. That's that's the hard part for me. And so I sent a story to uh, this month's uh, this the next issue's artist, which is uh, Hugo Award winning Elizabeth Leggett. And I said, here's the story. And I kind of want I gave her some elements that I wanted in the in the in the cover. And she sent back something completely different 
but was so brilliant. I knew this is why I'm not an artist. This is why I'm not an art director. Her cover shows the more poignant piece from a story that is technically fun, but it, it, it shows that we're not, like I said, we're not just slapstick. We're not just a hundred percent humor. We have a lot of, of feeling and emotion in our stories. And this cover just slams you in the face with that. It's beautiful. So I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to have worked with her and really hope that she'll she'll do another cover for us. The soft underbelly of your fun yeah, story. Yeah, exactly. The more I've had a chance to work on publishing projects, the more I get super excited every time we start talking about art because that expression of the fiction in a different medium is so cool to see sort of realized. I can't imagine what that's like. As an editor, I, there's a certain pleasure. I, I imagine as an author, it's another level of pleasure to sort of see that emerge. But I, I think in your position, that would be one of the, the things I would have the most fun with. You know, it's, I, I think I'm a I'm a, a, a good author for an illustrator because, <laughs> because I'm so bad at picturing things that when someone sends me a cover, I'm like, wow, that looks awesome! And almost never have comments about oh uh, that's not how i pictured it because you know that's that's not that's not what happened in the first place so yeah before my shambling guide books they got uh jamie mckelvey who's an amazing comic book artist those are friggin awesome covers yeah and i i got to meet him in london uh he didn't go to Worldcon, but i saw him at one of the satellite party kind of things and was just trying not to be a gibbering fangirl, but uh, did manage to tell him how much I enjoyed his work and, and what it added to my books. So what else about Mothership Zeta haven't we talked about? Obviously y'all are, y'all are paying the CIFWA pro rate. So that's good. Um, yes. You are open to submissions. Uh, we will be open to submissions in May. We opened for two weeks in October and got 800 stories. So that that got us that got us through a lot of of that 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 it, it it's hard to decide you know how much you're gonna buy you no one ever tells you that it's like mm-hmm. okay so you get X number of stories you want to buy Y stories but what if you get Z number of awesome stories that's bigger than Y and you know so uh, we we were set for a while after that huge influx of amazing stories. So um, we're going to be reopening again in, in May. Yeah, that's that's a, a tough challenge, I think. I mean, uh, the news that came out a couple weeks ago that Tor.com was closing its slush pile, essentially, and only going to you know, only uh, solicit or or um, or have agented submissions, I guess, or a author direct to editor submissions. Oh, they're closing entirely? The slush, yeah. There's, oh, there's, I didn't hear that. Oh, yes, wow. No more slush pile for Tor.com. Uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Is, uh, no plans to reopen. I'm sure it'll happen at some point, but no plans at this point to reopen. And so this was met with some con- you know, some disappointment within the community, which, sure. is, which is understandable. But by the same token, I think it's that same problem that you speak to, which is like they had the slush pile open for essentially open for years. And imagine all those stories that were being submitted. And yeah, like as an editor, as a group of editors, it's like, how do you know when to stop buying and wait for the next submission as opposed to this very great submission that's sitting in front of you, right? And so 
I don't have any insight into how many stories Tor.com is sitting on, but I imagine it's probably a pretty substantial number uh, of stories that they've purchased that they're waiting. And, you know, who knows? They may not need another story uh, for, for six months or nine months or 10 months because they've got so many already in the can. It's it's an interesting challenge, I think, from short fiction because there is such a – I'm going to use the word glut, which has a negative connotation, but I don't, sure. I don't mean it to have a negative connotation. But there's a, there's a ton of un- great unpublished short stories that are looking for a market. And uh, I think cutting through that and is gonna is a real ch- has to be a real challenge. It really is. I think, and my memory is not the best, so forgive me if I got this wrong. But I seem to remember I was talking with Sheila Williams at a con once, and she told me that when she took over, uh, so when she took over Asimov's, there were I think a couple of years of stories purchased. So it it was uh, they were they were on a, a large pile. This this could be incorrect, but but that's what my memory tells me, which is just astonishing. And I think when Charlie took over FNSF, he had a pretty substantial number as well. Um, right. And I think maybe he spread them out so he didn't have to close submissions, you know, like you just said, sure. like, I've only got, you know, a few spots. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's got to be what do you And also do? you want to put your, your mark on the magazine once right. you take over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, probably just easier to you're, you get to start fresh, which is great. Uh, it also means you have at least the ability to buy a little bit more than you uh, need immediately because you do want to have them. Because you know you never know. Like the next submission period might only net you like ten really great stories instead yeah. of thirty or whatever. You know, I think that's because you're always trying to hedge. You're always trying to guess. Like, well, what's coming down the pike? Is it going to be as good as what I've got now? I, and we've got we've got some solicitations out to authors who uh, we would love to feature, but for some reason or another, either they they had deadlines or they didn't hear about our open period uh, right. with enough time. Let's talk about solicitations okay. for a second, because this is like right. I think from an editorial perspective, this is this is scary. It's almost it's, it's sort of like the same thing as hiring a cover artist in that. You know, when you solicit a story from somebody and then you don't necessarily love it, like that's hard. Right. Or like if you you hire a cover artist and you don't really love it, it's hard. You know, it's it's this sort of like a, it, it initiates an awkward conversation. So how how have the solicitations been for you so far? Like, what's that process like for you? Does it, does it make you nervous? It, it makes me a little nervous, but we haven't had any problems yet. Uh, one thing that's really interesting about Mothership Zeta versus some of the, the my experience with the other escape artists podcasts and please note, I said my experiences because I don't know what the other editors do. But um, oftentimes we didn't do a lot of editing, uh, probably because we bought a lot of re- reprints. But uh, even once we started buying originals, we didn't do a lot of editing. And with uh, Sunil is very hands on with editing and he is 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 doing a great job with making the stories better. Um I put it in my comments, but a lot of it is Sunil driving the conversation with the art with the author. And so a couple of times that we've asked for things and it hasn't been exactly what we wanted, we've been usually able to have a conversation to get the story where we want it to go and then purchase it. So we really haven't had the, hey, can we get a story? Oh, what did you send us? Crap. That hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it won't. <laughs> just, I hope it won't. <laughs> it's just one of those. It's like one of those things that sits in the back of your mind that you're just. I'd be so nervous about personally, but that's 
Now I've probably put that in your head. You probably weren't even thinking about it. Sorry. No, no, I do think about it. Because uh, I think about it a lot as an author. I'm like, oh, wow, someone solicited a story. Big imposter syndrome. It's like, oh, crap. Then I'm going to send them a story and they're going to know that I'm full of it. Like, this better not suck. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's luckily the things solicited for me have not been turned down so, thus far. But I keep waiting for it to happen. Oh, wait, no, there have been some nonfiction stuff that's been solicited from me and never responded to. That's how they rejected it. Oh, that, I, that was that was awesome. You're out at the end of the month. Uh, you have another issue then coming in like May. Uh, April, April. April. Yeah. Okay. So quarterly. Uh, and what do you charge for an issue? I believe we're at three bucks. So two ninety nine. Or you can get uh, a subscription, a yearly subscription via waitlist books at uh, ten bucks, which means you get one for free. And these issues are available on a per issue basis, like on Amazon and other places like that. Yes. Okay, so I can just go on there and search Mothership Zeta, and I can find what I'm looking for. Yep. Well, that's very exciting. So before I let you go, Mer, I just want to talk a little bit on a personal note about your forthcoming novel, which I'm very excited about. And it's titled Six Wakes. And I want other people to be excited about it. So tell, tell me about it. I would love to have other people excited about it. Uh, it's a story about uh, six clones driving a generational starship. So their their job is to drive the starship. When one of them dies, they just wake up a new body uh, and keep going. Only all six of them wake up at once. And instead of the the usual way of going about it, which is, you know, polite, non-ritual disposal of the previous body. All six dead bodies are floating among them uh, because someone, one of them has murdered them and they wake up and they don't know who did it. So it's the uh, it's a clone murder mystery in space. I like this. So I love mysteries because I have this whole theory that the best, the most like addictive fiction like gives you like that question in the first chapter that you just have to answer and you can't stop right. reading until you get the answer, which I love. But the other thing is generational ships. I have a theory that generational ships are on the comeback. Like they are on, you are on trend. Mer. This is, Oh, my, Oh, good. <laughs> yes. Like I, I, I'm noticing like we're starting. So, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote Aurora. That's right. Yep. Uh, Patrick Tomlinson has uh, the arc that just came out from, um, angry robot books. Uh, Cameron Hurley's next book is a generation ship kind of kind of story. You and then you got this one. I, I I think the generation ship is on trend, and I think it's like the response to ecopunk, like the whole climate change science fiction. Really, explain yeah. that to me. So, if you look at like what Pal you know the Palabachigalupis and you know the, the Toby Bakels and these kinds of sure. books that are positing sort of like these end of the world type, very grim dystopias. Like what is what is the ultimate expression of human hope, right? Because like most of these dystopias, these climate change dystopias, like are bleak, no hope. And so the ultimate expression of human hope, I posit, is the generation ship. It's this notion ah, of like the blank slate. We are putting this piece of humanity into a boat, and we're sending it off into the nowhere to reestablish what it means to be human and redeem ourselves for the mistakes that we've made on our own planet. And like, this is like at the core of the generation ship. And so that's my theory is that sort of the, uh, just out of nowhere, you know, a lot of authors have sort of had this notion that, that, uh, the generation ship is sort of this exciting, hopeful idea, 
Uh, now the stories don't have to necessarily be hopeful, but the, the generation ship itself, that's my theory. That's so. really interesting. So I'll be curious to see if we continue to see more of them. Um, you're at, you're at the forefront though, cause you're out in October. You're at the forefront. That's good. That's good. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. But, uh, and the funny thing is it's, it's this whole, uh, I believe the fancy people call it a gestalt, which is you don't say, I read a generational starship book and thought, Hey, maybe I'll do that. It's just, you had your own idea and started developing it. And it just so happens that it happened several other places at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, the stories are all different, right? They're not, but it's just this idea that, um, that this certain trope might be playing in the minds of a lot of people because of what's going on in, in society or in culture or in fiction the years before, you know what I mean? Right. It's, it makes sense. It's not, I would never say it as a critique of anybody. I, I always think this whole notion of like, well, there's a hundred books just like that is stupid, right? Yeah. There's a thousand books like every book, you know, if you really yeah. look at it, but it's all about sort of this, what, what conversation is taking place that might be spawning up these sort of um, similar milieus or whatever. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of an interesting conversation. Cause if you look at like, why did we get grimdark, right? We got grimdark because of all this fluffy fantasy from the eighties. And so why did we get dystopia, you know, climate change type stories? Well, because we were, you know, going the other direction. And I don't know. I, it's my theory. Sticking so why it. did we get books like uh, The Hunger Games and Divergent? Uh, yeah, those those first person dystopia YAs. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's probably some... I haven't thought in a lot of thought about YA and kind of how it developed. I imagine it's something... Uh, I bet I could probably make a Save by the Bell reference here and say it's like some response to Save by the Bell. <laughs> if, oh, God. Speaking of Save by the Bell, if, if anybody listening to this has not listened to the Robert Brockway podcast I did uh, for his first novel, came out earlier, uh, late early last year, uh, he has a whole riff about how Mario Lopez is Satan in, in that podcast and how his villain in his book is based on Mario Lopez and his soulless, vacant expressions. It's great. Just, people should go back and listen to that. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was a little concerned that Mario Lopez's lawyers would come after him after that podcast. But Mario Lopez is the one that looks like an alpaca. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, he's AC Slater. He's the, the drummer with the kind of the, the, the curly hair. Oh, no. Okay. You're thinking of Screech, maybe. No, no, no. I'm thinking of... Uh, oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. You're thinking of Saved by the Bell. I'm thinking of the heartthrobs of today, which is the guy who played the werewolf in Twilight. He's the one who looks like an alpaca. Yeah, he's kind of fallen off the map since the Twilight stuff slowed down. Oh, well. But yeah, so anyway, Mario Lopez and Save by the Bell. But I think it's it could be sort of a response to that sort of, you know, sugar-coated programming for young people, sanitized. Right. Although I still think there's not nearly enough sex in those books, but whatever. That's just that's just me. Like, I kept reading, like, The Hunger Games, and I'm like, really? They're about to die. Come on. <laughs> They're about to die. And they did a lot of sleeping together. Yeah, like, in the yeah, exactly. Exactly. Those books would have been a lot more fun if they'd have been a little bit more honest about what. That's true. That would let's take some joy where we can. I mean, I I just think it was sort of unrealistic to say that these sixteen year old, seventeen, eighteen year old kids wouldn't be uh wouldn't be taking that that route. Right. But I mean, I mean, even the kids in Twilight had sex for God's sakes. Right? After they were married, right? Did they wait? Yeah, they probably did. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was one of the things. I didn't read it, but I did read a lot about it. I read the first book. Really? Yeah, I felt like it was my duty. Was it as uh, 
my yeah. my theory about those books was that they they appealed because they described the hormonal carbonation that you feel as a teenager so perfectly. Is that right? I, I think so. I just think they are. It's like the Da Vinci Code for vampires. You know, like that kind of fiction that's just so accessible and so comforting and so easy. Um, and it plugs into like, I don't, I don't like to use the term cheap emotion because that again is a negative connotation, but like, it's not really a criticism, but that's what it does is it just plugs into sort of these, these cheap surface emotions that we don't have to dig too deep into. And they just, it just appeals to us on that sort of visceral level. I think, I don't know. I, I, I actually kind of enjoy it. When you're it. a teenager, it's pretty deep. And that, I think that's probably right. I think that's yeah. probably right. Yeah. I'm actually reading a, um, uh, a submission right now for, for tour.com and it's, um, it's a, middle grade novella which is strange um mm. and like i'm reading it and it's really hard for me to sort of because obviously like tour.com is not a middle grade audience right. right it's an adult audience so it's like i have to read it as an adult but also trying to read it as a middle grade and being like well does this work as a middle grade and and if it works as a middle grade does it work as a middle grade and also work for adults like it's it's totally weird to read at that level and try to imagine i i these editors at Scholastic, like, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they put themselves in the mind of a 12-year-old to say this is going to appeal to a 12-year-old. It's got to be really hard. You can cut this if you like, but have you read Suzanne Collins's first series? I have not. It's called Gregor the Overlander, and it's a portal fantasy about a young boy who uh, falls through the laundry chute and lands in a world where humans have flourished underground with sentient bats and rats and insects and it is a an amazing fascinating adventure with his sister his toddler sister you have a, you have a baby as a major character who is not does not weigh down the narrative and is not there to make it cute and then in subsequent books she brings in PTSD again because essentially after two adventures, he's back home and he's looking at himself in the mirror and thinking, I can't ever go to the doctor again because they will look at these scars and think I'm being abused. I can't ever take my shirt off at the beach again. This kid's 11. That's intense. Yes, it's really intense. And while I thought the violence was a little overboard... I mean, she went on to write The Hunger Games. Um, you know, my my daughter, who was probably nine or ten at the time, was all over it. She loved it. And so it's it's it was but it it is middle grade. It's technically middle grade. The hero is eleven. Editors much smarter than I are evaluating what's gonna resonate with, with kids. I really a staggering thing when you consider like being able to take I guess it gets back a little bit to what we talked about earlier about you trying to identify like what is gonna be fun for your audience versus what is yeah. fun for you. And it's that same ability to sort of, it's empathy, I guess, is what it is ultimately. I guess that's what a good editor has to have is that empathy to the audience and knowing what's going to appeal to them, whoever they are, and being able to take, get outside yourself and see it from their perspective. But I don't know. It's a challenge. You know, as an editor, I really wish that I had made that observation, but you're, re you're really right. It is empathy. Man, that's deep. It is. It is. I might <laughs> steal it from you later. You can steal I'm it from me. just letting you know. It's good. It's good. I think on that note, we will we will end on an on empathy as a 
as the advice to our editor audience out there. The many That's editors cool. that listen to the show. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, well, anyway, Mar, thanks for coming on. Congratulations on Mothership Zeta. It looks like it's going to be a, a really cool success. I, I really enjoyed the, the first issue that you sent to me. And uh, good luck on Six Wakes and all the rest. Thank you so much, Justin. It's always fun to be on Rocket Talk. And we will see you in two weeks at Confusion. I know. Sunil and I will be there. It's going to be fun. All right. This has been Rocket Talk.